All right. Well, I didn't tell John at all this week what I'd be preaching on. And those songs are not directly tied to what I'm going to preach on, but I think the Spirit gave him those because it will give me, because this sermon is written to me more than any of you. Um, that's the way God typically works when he wants me to preach. He's like, hey, why don't you take a good look in the mirror and tell everyone else about it? So that's what's going to happen this morning. But being a relatively difficult message, somehow what the prayer and the songs were all about mercy and his grace and what it means to be saved as a softening pillow to fall down on as we talk about these things in this sermon. So let me pray, and then we'll dive into this. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, your salvation, and your son. I pray you'll fill this room and open hearts to hear what it is that you'd like to say, and I pray that we just take it in, apply it to our lives, and bring you glory each and every day. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's my turn. Week three of Substitute Pastors um, here in the pulpit, and I'm just happy you guys braved the frigid temperatures to come out. This is cold. I mean, no one can say this isn't cold. We may not be Kansas City cold, but this is cold. Um, but the last couple of weeks, Tom and Ricky have preached messages to get our hearts and our spirits focused on our relationship with Christ. Um, they spoke of our need for open communication with him through prayer, and to focus on our daily lives and our walk with him, because we also desperately need to walk closer with him. And is there any better place to be than in step with Christ? But if you're like me, and I hope most of you aren't, but if you're like me and your mind immediately goes to a question when you start thinking about that very thing, like what on earth does it look like for me to walk with Christ? I can see how others are doing it, but I'm not sure how I am supposed to do that. Now, we all have ideas of what it looks like to walk with Christ, but I think we also have a lot of misconceptions. Understand first and foremost, and this is the most important base element, is that no Christian is exempt from living and sharing the gospel message. There's no exceptions. Where it looks different, though, is how each of us does that. Now, we all know that there are a lot of preachers in the world, and thankfully here at Crestmont, we have a fantastic preacher. Ron brings the message every week and preaches the gospel. And if he's watching right now, we thank you, Ron. There are vocational evangelists, people who are literally paid by their churches to do evangelism. There are non-vocational evangelists, people that you probably know who somehow are always able to turn conversations that with anyone they're with to the gospel message in Jesus. They can be very bold, and some of them can be very loud, and you know the ones that are at football games and in crowds, at parades, and they got a bullhorn and a sign that says, repent, the end is near. Um, most of us are not those people. We also have authors, Christian authors who write about serving and walking with God. We have missionaries that we support here. Um, that serve in so many different capacities, doing acts of mercy while they're sharing their faith in the gospel. And we even have Christian personalities today in our world of social media um, 
in Hollywood and in sports, and they share their faith in very different ways. I mean, we can go all the way back to Tim Tebow, kneel and had, you know, verses on his eye black. I mean, that's evangelism, um, whether it's traditional or not, but they are there. And they, um, they're the people that we think as average Christians are the evangelists, the people who are walking out their faith. They're sharing the gospel regularly. Um, they're the evangelists of the world. These are the people that Ricky talked about a couple weeks ago that we tend to put up on a pedestal. You know, we support them. We give them the money to do the work. And we support them with likes. If they're, you know, if you hit like on a Christian Post clergy coaching network that I'm on, I'm always hitting like on that. And that's how they're supported, that you can support them simply by doing that. But these are not the only ways, and they're actually not the typical ways that most people can have a close walk with Jesus and share the gospel. Christ and the gospel message are shared when anyone, everyone in this room, shows an act of kindness because they know him. And they do it for him. It can be feeding the poor, serving someone in need, visiting someone who's alone and doesn't have anyone, even just showing patience in a difficult situation can be spiritual fruit. And if you're doing that around non-believers, uh, people who don't really understand why you do what you do, they'll be curious. Remember, there's no one type of person that walks with Jesus. Everyone in here is different. Um, Jesus wants all races, tribes, colors, and peoples of all ages to know him and be part of his family. But we have to understand that walking with Jesus is not just walking. It's not a passive walk. Never was, never will be. It's a working walk. It's doing what Jesus did. And it came, you know, as I did this sermon, it came to me this passivity thing that we like to fall into because it's easier. Um, I'm going to use Wayne Tatum here. He could come up to the church with a bunch of guys and demonstrate how to build a wall. And he could do it over and over again. But I guarantee you the men in that room will really never know how to build a wall until they build the wall themselves. And that's what Jesus is telling us and what we're going to cover. I know it's kind of weird. I haven't read any scriptures yet, but just the way this flowed, we're going to get to them in the middle and then move on from there. So if you're wondering where this is going and why I haven't talked about the scripture yet, we're getting there. Now, Jesus, we talked about all these people who are evangelists we look up to, we put them up on a pedestal. Well, Jesus did all those things. He preached to thousands at one time, but he also had intimate one-on-one -on -one conversations with people about who he was. He fed thousands, miraculously, in view of all of them. They all knew and saw it happen. But he also healed one-on-one -on -one and then told them never to tell anybody about it. So... All of you, yes, each one of you, fits somewhere in this walk. And I call it here the walkathon of Christian faith, because that's what it is. It's a journey. But one place none of us belongs is on the sideline looking on. Now, any of you who are, I'm going to use the term middle aged, will remember an old song by Cool and the Gang called Get Down On It. And he said, get up off the wall and dance because you're not going to be able to do it standing on the sidelines. 
And that's, I think, a call to each one of us to do that. Young, old, new Christian, seasoned Christian, whether you're called to vocational ministry or not, everyone has a calling and a job that the Spirit has for us. And he prepared you for that to carry them out in Jesus' name and strength, not your own. And I think that's where we struggle because we think we have to do it. And the truth is we don't. All you parents out there will know this when you hear this and go, but why? Why can't we just go to church and pray over meals and pray for the sick people and that'd be enough? Isn't that enough if we do that every day? And parents all say, no. And don't whine. But we can't just do those simple things no more than you could be a career student and never get a job. You're not going to, what is the purpose of your learning if you don't put it to practice? All we do, and now this is where it gets complicated because everything we do here as a church when we're here is vital to our spiritual growth and our health. It provides training, it matures our faith. But as the picture says, the glass only is half full, if that's what we have. Now, you look at that and go, oh, he's going to talk about optimism and pessimism. No, that's not where that's going. But what's in the water? And what's that half and what's the empty half? And that's what we're going to talk about. If we only do church, and I literally mean that, if you only come to church, your glass will never fill up. It will never overflow to the others in the world. And that's the overflowing that I mentioned when we were reading Psalm 23. The overflowing. This half glass that we already have, if you're coming to church and you're listening to Ron and you're, you're here, you're an active member of our church, your glass will be half full. And it's vital. Being here is vital. But to be truly overflowing, we must have good works. And in other words, action that results from this faith. You know, without worship, corporate prayer, the Lord's Supper, the teaching, the fellowship with each other, the glass wouldn't be full either. But it takes both things. So I'm going to read multiple scriptures here. You don't have to stand up because there's a bunch of them. But these are the things that God put on my heart to talk about. The first one is Romans 12, 3 through 8. And I know all of you know these, and you've heard them all, but when we put them all together, it says something very powerful. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not think of yourself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not, have, do not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in a proportion to your faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Does this not already speak to how he's going to use you differently? but also that he expects us to use them. We're many, but we don't all have the same function. 
but we all have a function. We don't just sit and do nothing. Move on to Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, which Tom is not, um, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. Be ready. That's why you're here. That's why it's so important to take these messages that Ron preaches in the gospel message to be ready. It's not to just to take it in, it's to be ready. And now into James. Why my grandfather who chose my name chose James, it was apparently well, well thought out. Um, but James does some hard speaking here. And he says in James 1, to 25, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who intently, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, we a blessing in his doing. Um, Cherish actually covered this in youth not too long ago about being doers of the word. And that's what he's saying, be doers. And this last verse is where we're gonna focus most of the rest of our sermon time, and you all know this one, James 2, 14 to 26. Tends to be a controversial verse that people can get very confused about, but it's in the Bible and it's true. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, boy, that would be horrible to do today, wouldn't it? Uh, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. We don't like that passage much. Um, because it's much easier to do easy things. And we've all read these many times, and you've probably heard sermons on this, and you've probably had Sunday school lessons on it. But there's something we need to talk about that is very basic, and I think many people have many misconceptions about this. As we know, works does not save you. Your works do not save you. Faith by grace from God saves you. That's it. It's simple, and that's amazing that John had those verses in there, the mercy and the grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that you all know, for grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. You're not saved by your works, so that no one may boast, but for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I've heard Ron say this more times than I can count. 
over the 10 years we've been here. And a former pastor of mine, Danny's back in Arlington, I think he quoted this verse almost in every single sermon he ever preached. I mean, literally, he worked that verse in every single time. So, since salvation is through faith alone, and if that faith is real, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and changes you. That's not optional. It's a change. Saving faith changes you and makes you new. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 18, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? I mean, a long time ago. But that doesn't mean that the change stops because your walk through this life is a journey. And if you're walking with him, you're stagnant. The new creation has a changed heart for the things of God. And the things of God are the things that Jesus did while he was here on earth. Jesus said to him, said himself that he was always working. John 5, 17 said, but Jesus answered them, my father is working into now and I am working. So logically speaking, if your profession of faith was real and you are saved, the evidence of that will be a changed life, will it not? And if you have a changed life, will you not do the works of Jesus? That's the logical conclusion. Those works don't save. They don't justify you for salvation before God. That's already a finished work upon your conversion. From being unsaved to save, the works then are a culmination of your faith that you read and you know, James talked about Abraham and Rahab. Those works showed their faith. So true saving faith equals action, or as James put it, works. That's the result of faith. This work gets a little scary. So we can profess Jesus as Lord. We can sing and worship. We can pray. We can believe we are saved. But if our lives do not reflect our salvation through the good works God calls us to do, is that a saving faith? James says no. Paul says no. And so does Matthew. And as Tom pointed out when he was looking at this to get all this together, he says, oh, we're going to preach on Matthew 7 again this week. And then the answer is yes. Matthew 7, 15 to 23, probably one of the scariest passages in all of Scripture. Beware of false prophets, you who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Here it is. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, I don't like the many, I don't like that many at all. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know how you can tie, not tie James and this together. But what's scary about it is, what is this fruit that Matthew is talking about? Why is some fruit that appears good not? 
And why would people who think they're saved not end up being saved and then be cast out? That's a question that I don't really have an answer to. But if you read through these scriptures and everything that we just talked about, it's because religious service is not the fruit Jesus is looking for. As Ricky and Tom both said, if you walk with Jesus and you commune with Jesus and follow Jesus, you will do his work. Not your work, his work. And what is that work? I'm glad you asked. Jesus quotes it, and it's almost too simple and also the most difficult thing in the world. He quotes it to a religious lawyer in Matthew 22, 35 to 40, and says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's what we sang about. This is the great and first commandment, but the second is like, the, like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend on all the law and the prophets. So the main deal for Jesus is that our faith lets us love God. He lets us know him and love him, which lets us, lets us work by loving our neighbor. And this is a verse where I think we all fear, just like the lawyer did that Jesus was talking to, who said, well, then who's my neighbor? Because we all know we fall short in loving our neighbor as ourselves. You see, the American church, and Ron talks about this a lot, over the last several decades has sought to grow the kingdom through programs designed to draw in non-believers, trying to be relevant in the culture by putting on a show that non-believers would like and bring them in. Sadly, these things don't bring people to Jesus. They lead people to other people into a building and to the people rather than the person that they're serving. Loving and serving our neighbor is how people will see Jesus and how they will come to want to know him. As we sit here, unless there happens to be a non-believer in the room who came on the Spirit's leading or watching online, we are having no effect on their coming to know Jesus. So, that empty part of the glass that was in the picture, you know, as we sit here and we are listening to God's word and we are fellowshipping together and our glass is half full, the other half of that glass is loving your neighbor like yourself. Loving like Jesus is seeing someone and considering others as much as yourself and hopefully more. Is it easy? Absolutely not. With Jesus' help and strength, completely possible. And I wrote this message because we have spent 10 years, over 10 years in our neighborhood, and honestly, we don't know our neighbors particularly well. And that's a failure. So the question is, is this necessary as evidence of your changed life in Christ? Yes. Do we want to be a healthy, vibrant church, especially as Ron returns from being out Winning souls to Christ, seeing the baptismal waters filled and stirred, then loving your neighbor is the narrow path that Jesus says leads to him. So faith and works are two sides of the same coin. They're not separate. Those two things, faith and works, fill the glass. There's a story I read. It's very simple, but apparently it's been around a while because they're talking about a rowboat for Pete's sake. We don't use those too much anymore. 
But remember the Scottish rowboat owner who took people across the lake. One oar in his boat was labeled faith. The other was labeled works. And he would ask his riders which is more important, faith or works. Then would proceed to demonstrate how they are both equally important by taking only the oar marked faith and rowing hard, causing the boat to simply go around in circles, going nowhere fast. Then he would take the other oar marked works and do the same, this time going in circles in the other direction, again going nowhere fast. Finally, he would proceed to put both those oars marked faith and works in the water and show how quickly the boat moved through the water to the destination on the other side, saying to his riders, this is how faith and works must work together. It is not one without the other, but both. Now for years here at Crestmont, I've had many people talk about how they feel that our ministry is not flourishing. And I know Ron uses that word a lot, that we want to flourish. Is it possibly because we're only using one oar and been going around in circles? Maybe. Church, you know the definition of insanity, right? It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That goes for me. That goes for our pastor, if he's watching. It goes for our staff and it goes for our deacons and every saved Christian in this room. We have to get both paddles in the water. Not forsaking one for the other or saying one is more important. But if we don't, we're just going to go in circles and stay in one place. So it probably has you thinking. Let's talk about thinking. See, in the Western world, we think like the Greeks did, and that's called Hellenism. It was prevalent in Jesus' day, but that was kind of funny to say. That was new at the time. Thinking using your solely what's going on in your mind through thoughts and, and uh, concepts, that, that's not how the ancient Hebrews thought. They thought differently, and I, we can't even conceive of how to think differently because we just think the way we think. But they thought in terms of action. I had a professor once in seminary say, you know, when a Greek would look at a horse and want to know how many teeth were in its mouth, they would go count them. That's logical. The Hebrews would look at a horse and figure out, well, his it's this kind of horse and it has this long of a head, so therefore it must have this many teeth. That's completely different than how you would think about looking, and that's kind of a difference in how you would look at things. But in this case, remember, James was thinking more about through the Hebrew thought when he wrote these words to his church, and it was very specific, that letter. We take it out of context, but in the context that James was writing, he was writing to what was going on in that church. They were showing favoritism to the rich, and they were neglecting the poor. These same rich people, however, were the very ones that were oppressing the poor and oppressing others, taking the court, raising lawsuits, but in the next breath, they were claiming they were Christians. Acting spiritual, but not doing as Jesus commands, according to James, is not a saving faith. They will be the ones that Jesus will say, I never knew you. If any of you follows me on Facebook, I tend to post a scripture every day, usually from my reading. But this week, in preparation for this, I saw a quote, and it hit hard. So I had to share it with some people this week, and I posted it, and it said, spirituality that impresses people without improving people is worthless spirituality. So 
here we must continue to worship. We've got to gather as we do. We fellowship and we pray and we grow in our relationship with Jesus as we have here for years at CBC. But we also must put that other oar in the water the rest of the week. The time we are not here together. And that's the vast majority of the time. We're only here a few hours a week. I did the math when I was reading this. You're here, if you're here for the three hours on Sunday morning and two hours on Wednesday night, you are in church 3% of your week. That's all. We need to be loving our neighbor all those other hours. And Jesus won't have it any other way. So what does that mean for me and you? It's going to look different for each one of us because you all have your own special flavor of fruit. Spiritual fruit, that is. We all have unique giftings. Each one of you has gifts that the Spirit has given you. And He uses them, and they will be very individual to you. We have different places we're in when we're not here, different audiences, different family members. But Jesus expects us to use those gifts and be pliable to the Spirit. Because if you've been a Christian any length of time, You've heard the Spirit prompt you to do something or say something, and sometimes you do, and then sometimes you don't. Usually out of fear, but it happens. Here's a name you probably haven't heard in a long time. Remember the name Rick Warren? He, he came up in a thing I was reading this week, but he wrote about this and said, God gave us talents and expects us to use them. If you don't use them, you'll lose them. If you have a talent and are afraid to use it or get lazy and don't use it for the benefit of others, you're going to lose it. Sounds kind of negative and a little skeptical, but he's just quoting exactly what the parable of the talent said in Luke 19. They handed out gifts. Two of them used them and one didn't. And what happened to the one who didn't use his gift? It was taken away and given to the one who did. You don't want Jesus to take away anything. And when, you know, if you get gifts and if you receive gifts, you'll overflow. You can't stay half full. And if you're given more gifts, you're bound to overflow. So don't limit yourself to the half glass. Doing churchy stuff is spiritual, but it doesn't have an effect on anyone else. It doesn't have an effect. Doing churchy stuff is necessary for your spirit, but it doesn't affect anyone else. Jesus knew there would be those who would attempt to sound spiritual while avoiding a call to action. They're the people that James noted in his book that would say, you have faith, I have deeds, and, and vice versa. You, I have deeds, you have faith. They're basically saying that you can have one without the other, but that both aren't necessary. And this objection was raised in a way to excuse themselves from the responsibility of acting on your faith. And there will always be people in God's family who will attempt to convince others that they are deeply spiritual, though they have little action or practical ways to show it. That's too convenient and it's not biblical. And you know why I know that? Because those were the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew the scriptures inside and out by heart they appeared righteous. They prayed aloud so people could see their spirituality, but they wouldn't lift a finger to help anyone in need. 
They knew how to appear spiritual, but also how to avoid the responsibility of loving their neighbor. So let me say that quote again. Spirituality that impresses people without improving people is worthless spirituality. So in other words, don't be a Pharisee. In the last days that we're in, right now, and the days get shorter and shorter, it seems, the world is already full of these people. Pure spiritual, but loving little. In 2 Timothy 3.5, he says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid those people. Lord, let us not be those people. So let the sermons you hear from Ron and all those that he allows to stand here in this pulpit to deepen your faith and trust in Jesus. Fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ regularly is so important. And continue to pray without ceasing as we're asked to do, but don't stop there. Don't stop at half glass. Don't be content with only being half full. Let the things that are meant to encourage and strengthen you to service move you into action. Belief is just not enough to live an overflowing life because Jesus wants you to have an abundant life, as it says in John 10.10. Remember that the demons, as they talked about, they believe, they believe in God and Jesus and they shudder. Their faith causes them fear and they shudder. Faith that is devoid of righteousness, of a righteous expression, is not peaceful. And it's not what God causes calls his children to do. So think about it. Demon faith shudders. Real faith serves and takes action. And that kind of faith, serving faith, will bring peace and joy and comfort and power and patience and all the spiritual fruit. Paul said in Titus 3.8 that we read earlier, says that doing what is good is excellent and profitable for everyone. And if he means everyone, that means the doer and the receiver. Most of us don't think that serving others is going to profit you in some way, but it absolutely does. I think back to pre-pandemic, we would do things out in the community that it's been so hard to get back to do, um, whether that's serving the homeless that we did down in Fort Worth. I can remember, and I still see in memories when they come up, how much joy we had after we did that. And all we did were doing was giving things away, giving ourselves away. Therefore, if that's going to bring joy, and since we're all called to it, not just some of you, all of you, not just the staff, not just specially educated people who went to seminary, not just those people on the pedestal, all of us, every one of us. And again, I don't know how it looks for each one of you when you walk out the doors, how Jesus is going to say, love your neighbor. Whether that is literally going next door and checking on your neighbor today to make sure they have their heat and what they need or something else. But that's, it could be anything could be calling you to a ministry to start. It could be a million different things, but if that's the case, real faith cannot be held back from action. It will work and it will act. So are you ready? Three, two, one.
Let's go. So let's pray. Lord, you're in control of everything. I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. I pray that you will pour that out on each person here. And I know you will. And you forgive us for our shortcomings. You forgive us for the times we didn't serve you and we should have. But your mercies are new each morning. Lord, you lift us up. You never give up. And I pray we will not either. Take this message, Lord. Impact hearts. Help us love our neighbor like we never have before. Help us have an impact on our community and bring you glory. And I just thank you. And we love you in Jesus' name. So I'm going to go down. I would just pray during this song. God has a word. He has a job. He has something that he wants you to do. He has a neighbor in mind that he wants you to serve or talk to or just be there for. I don't know what it is, but he does. So just take this time, whether it's in your seat or at the altar, or if you want to pray with me, I'll be here in front. But I thank you, and we thank him. Thank mm-hmm. you.